Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, the alarming rise in Treasury yields finally cooled off this week. But is this really the end or do rates have further room to move higher? And what does it all mean for this rotation into value in cyclical stocks? Our guest will share some thoughts on this issue, as well as explain why he's looking at stocks in the United Kingdom, among other international markets. But before we get to that, uh, since Sarah abandoned us all here, sadly, I've decided we will bring in sort of a rotating cast of reporters, editors, and strategists from throughout the Bloomberg universe to, to fill in for her on a sort of rotating basis. And as listeners know, I can't resist a good gimmick, so I'm going to call it the mystery co-host of the week. So Charlie Pellet, take it away and tell us who this week's mystery co-host is. This week's mystery co-host is Kriti Gupta. Kriti is a reporter for Bloomberg's Market Live blog and a regular on Bloomberg TV and radio. She's a Texan at heart and owns a dog that resembles an old man. It is true, and I'm very proud of it. Even when I got him as a puppy, he was only a month old, and he still looked like he had you know, 20 years of experience, which, to be honest, is actually pretty interesting because when I was little, that's what my mom used to say about me. So I think it's only fitting that I got this dog. I, it's fitting for me because I'm an old man who looks like a dog. So I, I feel I feel some <laughs> comradeship here. I think we all have our weak points, Mike. I'm just not going to comment <laughs> on yours. So, <laughs> um, but anyways, so that's enough about my dog. I do want to introduce our guest, though. Uh, this week's guest, the head of investment strategy for City Personal Wealth Management. His name is Sean Snyder. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I do want to dive right in here to the tech slash yields component. I mean, we've been talking about it for weeks, this inverse correlation that you're seeing. And, and the narrative seems to be that if tech's kind of future earnings are based on longer term growth, based on this idea that all of their growth is coming in the future, therefore, they're more going to be more sensitive to yields. But how can you make that argument when you, perhaps the last 10 years of growth you've seen in tech isn't necessarily indicative of the same margin of growth you're going to see in the same sector for the next 10 years. So how, how do you how do you justify that? Sure. I think the most simplistic way to think about what's happening is uh, essentially if you have inflation rising, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. And technology stocks are generally considered long duration assets. So they're particularly sensitive to the rise in yields, but not just the rise in 10 year nominal yields, but really the 10-year real yield. That's what matters the most. They've actually uh, tracked fairly well together in an inverse correlation over the last, say, six months or so. Uh, so it's really what's happening to the real yield that matters most for technology. Uh, I will argue that you are right. Technology today looks very different than it did in the past, right? When we had the technology bubble, you had really extreme valuations and not a lot of earnings. 
a lot of these companies now actually have significant earnings. So it is different. I would say they're maybe a little bit less vulnerable um, than they were back then. Sean, since this all sort of the linchpin to to all of this rotation is in the bond market, um, this week we did see that that ten year yield sort of uh, come down a little bit. Walk us through what you're thinking about the the long end of the curve and and the yield curve. I know you've done some some work looking about looking at that and thinking about it. I don't think anyone is very confident that this surge in yields is quite over yet. I mean, is this kind of a head fake that we're seeing this week? What's your take on on this sort of uh, mini correction back lower in yields that we're seeing? I think the last week or so could probably be chalked up to COVID jitters. You've seen some renewed lockdowns in Germany, although very short-lived. I think they end uh, you know, in, a, in a week or two. I think it's April 18th or something. I don't remember the exact date, but it's not a long-lived lockdown. Uh, so it's a very similar thing in France. Uh, and I think there's some concerns that these you know, new strains uh, <clears throat> may be spreading a bit more rapidly than we initially anticipated. So I don't think that delays the recovery significantly. You know, you heard President Biden talk about raising his goal from 100 million shots to 200 million today. Um, They are on pace to get there at the current pace, about two and a half million doses per day. Uh, To get that extra 70 million needed to hit his target, it only takes about 28 days. But I do think that's sort of why yields have kind of backed up a little bit. Um, When you mentioned what's going to happen over the long run, uh, this is not a new phenomenon to see the yield curve steepen. Uh, it's happened when the U.S. economy exited recession during the last four recessions. Uh, and eventually, the spread between the 10-year yield and the two-year yield, which is what we call the yield curve, actually peaked at about 2.4% or so during those last four recessions. Right now, the spread is about 1.5%. So that would imply there's probably further upside here to go. And if we look at the past four recessions again, it took about 22 months on average from the end of the recession to the yield curve peaking. Now, the recession has probably ended a while ago, right? It may have ended in September 2020. I'm not the one who's the arbiter of when recession officially ended, um, but we're probably at least several months into the recovery. So some of this has already been priced in. The yield curve has already steepened, uh, but we probably have further to run based on what's happened in historical examples. It's fascinating that you say that because you've talked about post-recessionary periods, but something else that's pretty common in post-recessionary periods is this idea that value stocks continue to rise. And I think the connection to that, for example, with the yield picture is going to be that financials will rise as well in line with those yield curves. But how do you decide how long that that rally runs up? I mean, it makes sense to buy things like financials, like I mentioned, or commodities or EM, for example. But when do you decide that that period of outperformance is over. When do you decide that we're now going to be in a growth environment again? That is an absolutely great question to determine when exactly something ends. Uh, I think there's further room to run. If you just look on a very, very basic level, uh, the Russell 1000 growth index versus the Russell 1000 value index, and you look at how they performed since the end of 2019, the growth index is up about 40%. The value index is only up about 10%. So to me, that suggests that there's further room to run in the value space. And it really is particular for financials because you think that a steepening yield curve benefits them through net interest income. And they also took a lot of loan loss reserves in anticipation of this pandemic causing credit issues. And because we've got so much significant stimulus, they really haven't quite seen that. So eventually that's going to be released and that will turn into profits. Now, some of that's priced in probably. Um, but I still think there's some room to run there for financials, particularly if we're talking about 
another 1% higher uh, or steepening in the yield curve. Yeah, Sean, I keep thinking of a word that I haven't used or, or heard in a, in a long time, and that's Goldilocks. I feel like the market is really hoping for sort of this Goldilocks recovery. If it gets a little too hot, if inflation's a little too hot, that's obviously uh, going to raise rates and be an issue. But as you point out now with Germany locking down, even here in my home state of New Jersey, they've kind of halted the reopening to some degree. I wonder, you know, which is sort of a, a more painful event for the market? Is it uh, too hot of a recovery that that causes yields to rise and and people bring forward their timeline for the Fed uh, normalizing policy, or is it that this recovery is not uh, as robust as sort of this rotation and and the excitement over the rotation into cyclicals and, and value sort of implies which which one kind of scares you more? I think what scares me the most is if we're wrong about the path of the virus. That changes everything, right? If these strains come out, spread more rapidly than we expect, uh, or aren't covered by the vaccines, then that's kind of a game changer. Now, that's not the base case. It doesn't seem like that's happening, you know. And I do think that our treatment levels have improved greatly. Uh, number of hospitalizations, deaths likely come down. And I think, really importantly, you have a very significant portion of the 65 plus population already vaccinated. So, you know, I think they're right to be optimistic about the future. And, you know, if we do get six and a half percent growth like the Fed is projecting, then you're looking at the strongest growth since the early 1980s. And, and I think we will hit that. Um, so to me, I think that's the most important point of all of this. It's not rising bond yields. It's that we are exiting a recession. And this is probably just the beginning of a new economic cycle. And those tend to last five, six years, maybe longer. That's really the important point, because that's what's going to create earnings, and that's what's going to sustain the stock market over a longer period of time. Do you see corrections because of bond yields? Maybe. But at the end of the day, it's really about the economy recovering in the beginning of a new economic cycle. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, Sean, what's the trade here? And, and here's why I ask. I'm on a team that's filled with ex-traders, and they always ask me, what's the trade? Uh, so I'm very curious. When you have this risk or this continuing risk of uh, this virus, of perhaps more variants, can you really dive into the deep end with the value play? Or do you still have to have some sort of exposure uh, to things like tech, to things like utilities, those kind of uh, names that you can really continue to rely on? Sure. I don't think you just abandon technology or growth stocks. I mean, over time, they will continue to provide growth, as they're called. Uh, and you will see positive earnings in those spaces. So I don't think it makes sense to completely get rid of technology. Um, but, you know, you have a lot of people that have been heavily invested in technology since the beginning of the pandemic. And that scenario where we're all staying at home is potentially unwinding. So it's not all technology companies, right? There's some that have really strong uh, cash, cash on their balance sheet. 
they have strong corporate earnings. There's some that don't have a lot of earnings. Uh, there's also some that are uniquely benefiting from the pandemic, exercise equipment. So it really, it's not just tech, it's which type of tech. Yeah. I feel like the, the really the most speculative sort of earnings way off in the, in the distant future type of tech uh, are, are really the, the ARC, you know, Kathy Woods type of, of hopes and dreams type of stocks that are really getting hit the hardest. Is there something, I mean, is that all simply a uh, reverse of uh, side of the coin to the yields picture? I mean, it, what would it take to get that kind of really gung-ho, uh, gusty spirit towards those those type of stocks brewing again? Is it is it just as a simple matter of which way rates are going? No, I think it's valuations. I think if you see those stocks correct enough, you'll get people back into the space. I just don't think they feel completely confident yet that it's over, that it's corrected enough where the valuations are really appealing at this point. Uh, and it's natural that people are kind of nervous about how things look as we exit this recession. There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know uh, what's going to happen with inflation. We think we know. You can look at gasoline prices alone, and that will point towards a CPI that's over about 3% for the remainder of the year. So there's a really high probability that we get higher inflation, but we don't know if it's simply going to be 3% for a couple of quarters and then moderate, or if it's going to be something more significant. And that's really the uncertainty that keeps you from maybe going all back in on these high valuation areas. So tell me, you talked about valuations. How much does liquidity play into this? Because I think in the, par- the middle parts of last year, I have to say, there were companies who were just in free access of the debt market here. I mean, you had airlines really facing a cash crunch and then getting these kind of massive amounts of cash and issuing these bonds for 10, 13% premiums, tech coming in, uh, issuing bonds for literally no premiums. So what is the role here of those extra cash cushions that tech may have, but now other kind of battered sectors have too, from airlines to cruise lines, et cetera. Where does the liquidity piece of the equation come in? Sure. So I'm not sure I'm going to answer this exactly the way you'd want me to, but if you think of how much stimulus has been done, you've seen personal income rise $1.1 trillion last year for the nation as a whole. And a lot of that money went into some of these technology things, exercise equipment, all those stay-at-home type stocks. So that is liquidity in the sense that it actually reached consumers, consumers actually spent it. But are they going to continue that same behavioral pattern, or are they going to move towards the services sector of the economy? Are they going to start booking trips? Are they going to start going back to hotels? Are they going to do those types of things? Um, So to me, that's kind of where the liquidity plays. And you're absolutely right um, when you talk about technology and airlines and some of these with debt. But if you look at the S&P 500, nowhere near the same performance for the other 495 stocks, right? So you had significant run-up, maybe 130% return in those top five stocks. And then maybe not even half of that, maybe 60% in the other 495. So when I hear about liquidity just insanely driving up the market, it's not all of the market. There's plenty of areas that are still beaten down. You know, Shai, I wanted to get to that notion uh, about the value in, in overseas markets. And you, you had pointed out the uh, UK market, you know, looking at the FTSE here, uh, never did quite reclaim that that record back. I think it was 2018. I mean, I guess... There's always hand wringing over Brexit and and the trade situation and that sort of thing, but yeah, we're we're still down a good fifteen percent for the FTSE from from that peak. 
Um, walk us through what is attractive there. Obviously, valuations, uh, I'm sure, are part of it. Is it is it kind of hand in hand with the the rotation into the the more cyclical parts uh, of the of the market? Is that kind of the the story for the UK and and a lot of the bullishness towards uh, you know the rest of the world compared to the US at this point? Yeah, that's right. So when I think of UK equities, I'm not thinking that it's going to be some hot stock, so to speak, that you get rich on, right? This is not one of those <laughs> types of investments. But what it is, is something that trades at about 14 times earnings, which is about a 40% discount to US stocks. Uh, significant weighting of the FTSE 100 is in energy and financials, which are both positively correlated with yields. That means if yields go up, those sectors tend to benefit. And it doesn't have a lot of exposure to technology. It's under a 2% weighting uh, in the index of the FTSE 100. So it's not that it's necessarily going to make you rich instantly, but if you're looking for an area that is still offers value, um, probably has upside to here, we think it's attractive. And I also want to point out that this has been a rolling healthcare crisis the entire time, right? It started in China, then it spread to Italy, then it spread to the US. We're essentially seeing the reverse of that now, where you're going to have lots of vaccinations in the US. Then you're going to have vaccinations in Europe. Then maybe it moves to Latin America. So those areas will recover, but slower and later than we do in the U.S. I love that you brought up vaccinations because that's been something that people have saying. How do you trade on this? Uh, something back in 2020 that was happening is people were trading in the opposite direction about in terms of case counts. They were buying U.S. markets because Europe and China was more exposed to the virus than the U.S. was at the time. And then it's kind of got flipped on its head. So how do you trade the opposite? We're going to talk about vaccinations, for example, where you have perhaps the US uh, or even the UK leading in those vaccinations. But like you said, uh, EM is not. Well, I guess one way to think about it, and again, not sure I'm perfectly answering the question, but the more vaccinations you have, then it's more likely that you're going to pull back on some of the stimulus over time, right? So eventually these central banks are going to start to exit from the massive amounts of stimulus they've provided. And I think that that will be a concern, not necessarily immediately. We hear investors talking about it in the U.S. right now, what the Federal Reserve is going to do. Are they really going to wait until the end of 2023 to raise interest rates, or are they going to do it towards the end of 2022? Um, will they start to taper asset purchases at the end of this year, or is it early 2022? Um, I think those things will be issues for markets down the road. Um, so as far as vaccinations increasing, it's a great thing. We all want to get back to life. I think that's important. Um, and I also would point out economy is not the stock market. Stock market is not the economy. That old adage. Um, I think there may be more truth to that as we get further along in this, where the vaccinations increase the uh, economic outlook and the growth outlook, uh, but kind of decreases the amount of stimulus that we're seeing in the market. You know, Sean, I think it's a it's a fascinating time to try to figure out what the the Federal Reserve's next move uh, will be. As you point out, you know, everyone trying to determine when that tapering begins. I mean, it seems to me uh, that they're going to have a hard time tapering uh, without causing some agita, as they say, in in the market one way or the other. But I also wonder, you know, is there an equal chance that we get a surprise from them in the other direction, some kind of yield curve control or some kind of operation twist to keep those that long end tame? Is that I, I wonder if the market is in some way almost uh, begging for that or, or wishful thinking for that type of scenario? What, what do you think? Yeah, I, th I think it's fascinating that you bring that up. I was thinking about this the other day and 
you know, it almost feels like investors are kind of this mindset that the Federal Reserve is on the sidelines and they're not going to help us out. We can't count on them anymore. But if you think about what they're saying, they're saying we need to see either substantial further progress in the recovery or a market deterioration in financial conditions. What would get you a market deterioration in financial conditions is if the stock market sells off sharply. <laughs> so if the stock market sells off sharply and corrects because of these rising bond yields, then you actually have more impetus for the Fed to step in and do a program like QE Twist, where it would actually, once again, help markets. So I think there's support there that people are maybe ignoring. It's almost like the, the proverbial pow put. You know, we're, we're all trying to figure out what that type of volatility would look like to, to get us there. I, don't, I guess no one knows until we see. Right. I mean, maybe if you get, you know, real 10-year treasury yields near zero, that would maybe be concerning. I don't think there's much appetite for a positive real yield. Uh, or if you saw 15, 20% stock market sell-off, um, you know, I do think you'd see action. So it's not like they're completely gone. The Federal Reserve has not disappeared. They're comfortable with their stance for now, but things could change. So speaking of a 15 to 20% stock correction, what might be the catalyst of that, if not the Fed and a deterioration uh, from their end? What else could possibly create that kind of move? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I do think the tapering is something that, you know, I don't think it would create a bear market. I, I just don't see that. I think there's such strong tailwinds right now. Um, but again, any change in the path of the virus would be something to consider. Uh, maybe if earnings really disappoint, um, maybe if you saw these rising yields become a credit market issue, which I don't think there's really signs of that yet, um, but it could be something. It's, it's always tough to say what exactly the catalyst is going to be. When you have stretch valuations, it doesn't always take a whole lot, uh, and it usually comes out of nowhere. You know, Sean, I, I am picturing the clients, uh, the city wealth clients as being, you know, Somewhat sophisticated as far as individual investors, somewhat, let's imagine, deeper uh, account balances than the Robin Hood set out there. Um, but there's a lot of speculation these days about what the individual investor is going to do next, especially all these you know, new gung-ho younger retail traders on Reddit and on Robin Hood. Is there any insight you have from sort of the clientele you deal with? Again, I think it's not exactly a a complete overlap with that uh, that type of trader, but you know, just from the sense of individuals, kind of what their their sentiment is like the, these days. Are they are they still willing to chase this rally to embrace risk, or you know, is that sort of wearing off to some degree? I think it's wearing off to some degree. You've actually seen retail investors seemingly step back a little bit um, over the past few weeks or so. Uh, and I would tell, tell you, someone just asked me to speak to their high school because they're, uh, the, stu the students in the finance club are all, you know, just talking to each other about hot stock tips and trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> and they're trying to convince them that that's not how you invest, that you should look over the long term and, and not just risk money at any, uh, any throw down anything. So it's still going on. I, I think it's encouraging to actually have retail investors in the market. It's just, when you get into these speculative areas, uh, you really need to know your risk tolerance. And I don't think people actually understand their risk tolerance until it really collapses on them. And I'm not sure that that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, but, you know. It, it almost feels too like that $1,400 check that landed in, in people's. It, it feels like house money to some degree, I, I imagine, to, to some traders. You know, wh what better use of it than to, to let it ride on something risky, I suppose. 
Right. Yeah. You have $1,400 stimulus checks. And I know there's other banks that put out research saying that, you know, at least a portion of that is going to go into retail trading. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let me ask you, how insulated or not insulated is the market from that? Because, I mean, we saw just a few weeks ago during this whole GameStop saga, the market literally sold off because of that. They were freaking out is what, is what my understanding was. To what extent is some of these bigger tech stocks, for example, that have these bigger weightings insulated from the retail bid who maybe can't afford a share of Amazon with their $1,400 checks? You know, I don't think it... it anything that would lead to broad market contagion. And the reason I say that is when you think of the uh, company that you just mentioned, uh, there's just about 0.7% of the market cap is shorted names. So it's not a huge section. So there's opportunities to kind of, you know, create this scenario where you can drive it up, but it's not in a lot of names. It's only a few names that you can actually do that in. Luckily, thank goodness, (laughs) I guess. It would be a, a crazy right. world if if it uh, if it were otherwise, which is our perfect segue, Critty, to the craziest things we saw in markets this week, as Charlie Pelt will tell us. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Critty, no pressure on you. This is your first week <laughs> co-hosting. I lied. There's a lot of pressure on you. I, 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 I'm expecting you to bring it with the crazy thing. But before we get to that, I know we have a voicemail into the hotline. So let's listen to that and see what that's all about. Hey guys, it's Katie Greifold. I couldn't resist popping by because the craziest thing I've seen in markets this week and just in general is the Suez Canal situation. And I'm dying to talk about it. Basically, there's a boat as long as the Eiffel Tower is stuck in the Suez and it's causing this whole thing. There's oil tankers and container ships piled up behind it, causing a mess in the crude market. And I'm at home with my family this week, and they're tired of hearing me talk about it. So I thought I'd tell you guys. Hope the show is going well. I, I love Katie's enthusiasm for this story. She she's bored the the parents and her boyfriend at home talking about it. I can't. I'll talk about it all day. I think it's fascinating. This is the commodity traffic jam that I did not <laughs> see coming, right. and I love it. And I love that Katie obsesses about it because after the show, I'm going to message her about it. And it's fascinating that it's the size of, or bigger than the size of, the Eiffel Tower, which is honestly beyond uh, beyond imagination. I mean, the memes alone just make the story so interesting. Um, I think what's interesting about it, for me, the craziest thing in markets is the fact that people are actually playing this. Now, you originally saw a little bit of an oil pop on it because, you know, if oil's backed up. It makes that just a little bit more, create a little bit more demand. But there's this ETF that I really thought was interesting. Shout out to Rachel Evans, who pointed this out to me, called BDRY, B-D-R-Y. That's the ticker. It's the Baltic Dry Shipping Index. And on this news, it saw its biggest inflow in years. Now, this isn't an ETF that necessarily moves market. This isn't the QQQ or anything. 
But I thought it was interesting that people are actively trading on this idea that there's a ship stuck in a canal. It, it is. It's fantastic. The, the uh, JP Morgan's famous strategist, Marco Klonovich, even had a note out on it saying, there's a chance the ship could just break that in the process of delodging it, they'll just break the thing. And then the canal will be closed for weeks or months and it could cause shipping rates to go up, oil to go up. And he, he's got trades, like you said, recommended uh, uh, based on on the potential for that hedge hedge with oil and uh, oil stocks. It's so funny because uh, our colleague Joe Weisenthal wrote about this, that this is actually a function of ships just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of like economies of scale. No one actually thought that maybe they should account for the size of the actual canal. Yeah. Uh, maybe what are dig, the dig the canal a little wider and... Uh, yeah, it is. It's certainly one of the craziest things. I, I and we've seen a lot of crazy things here. What yeah. goes up in the last year, but that's pretty good. Sean, how about you? You got anything crazy for us? Well, Katie came in and stole mine. I did. I have a couple other ones, but it, it is absolutely fascinating. It's like the butterfly effect where a forty-five mile an hour wind blows the ship and gets it stuck. Right? It's and nuts, isn't it? Yeah, completely screws up the oil market. Uh, so I have two things, and one is ready to NFTs, and I'll be really quick on that one because that's probably been beaten to death. I was watching 60 Minutes the other day where Beeple actually said he thought the NFTs were in an asset bubble, <laughs> which, which <laughs> I find fascinating because I think no one would know about NFTs if it wasn't for Beeple. Uh, right. Beyond that, and this is ripped from the headlines of Bloomberg News, uh, the world is potentially facing a coffee deficit uh, oh. because of, again, supply chain. So coffee supplies in the U.S. are actually shrinking uh, due to a shortage of shipping containers and supply bottlenecks, and the coffee stockpiles have sunk to a six-year low. So mm-hmm. now, who knows what that happens to you know what happens to coffee inflation? But if you're going to get uh, gas at the gas station, that prices there have went up, and then your cup of coffee price goes up. Wait, things so, get real. So does that mean my cup of coffee could actually be more expensive than the five dollars I already spent on? A great cup of coffee. It may be. Uh, you, you millennials will never be able to afford a house now. If easy. they haven't hedged their costs. And just when I was going to give up avocado <laughs> toast, come on. <laughs> that's unrelated to the Suez Canal. That's just a, a, a separate incident. Unrelated. Yeah, that's pretty good. All right. Well, I, you guys are good. I, I don't think I can beat it, but I've got a good one that's kind of out of left field here. And this is courtesy of the always uh, brilliant Matt Levine's Money Stuff newsletter. And he wrote about the SEC and the Justice Department started investigating the quote unquote dark web, which I always hear about. I don't really know much about that. I don't think I've ever actually been on the dark web. I don't know how to get there if I need a different computer or something. I I don't know much about it, but it's fascinating. And they found some message board where people were trading insider tips, insider stock tips and paying each other in Bitcoin as one does. You know, what else are you going to pay? uh, for, for something shady like that. Um, so they, they caught this guy who's actually a, uh, employee of SpaceX of, of Elon Musk's, uh, SpaceX. He's an engineer for them and they arrested him for collecting uh payment in Bitcoin for insider tips. But here's the crazy part is they were fake insider tips and the SEC said he's being fraudulent by selling insider tips that were actually fake. It was just stuff that, you know, the guy, uh, I think, found in public documents and whatnot and and purported it to be insider tips. Uh, and the fraud, according to the SEC and the Justice Department, <laughs> is like, these are fake insider tips. You can't do this. So I thought that was pretty good. You know what that reminds me of? If I can just throw in my little two cents here. 
is, so I'm a big fan of anything related to the Royals, which I know when this gets published, I'm going to get a ton of backlash on. I just know it. (laughs) But there's this thing that I saw in like a Hallmark movie of the Royals where a prince who shall be unnamed uh, put out, you know, a secret, a a fake secret to see who his real friends were and who's worked. And this kind of sounds a little similar to similar to that to see if there is actually good behavior out there or or people are just uh, tricked, I guess. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, I'm glad you like the Royals. We'll, we'll have to talk about uh, my kids. Apparently on TikTok, the young kids are all fascinated with Prince Philip for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I read his Wikipedia page. What a fascinating, the guy, the guy's got more titles than anyone I know. He's the print. He was the Prince of Denmark and Greece. And then he married Elizabeth and they made him Prince of, of the UK too. He, he's got more, t- never, never will get the King title apparently, but enough more titles than anyone else I've ever heard. Of. Well, as long as it's not like overlord of the world, <laughs> I think we'll be fine. We'll save that title for you, Critty. You work your way up I'm to waiting. it. I'm waiting. I'm going to hold you up. To right. it. I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> but with that, I think that's all the time we had. Sean, as always, a great pleasure to have you on the show. We hope you can come back again. Uh, really enjoy your insights and your good humor. Thank you. I'd love to. Thank you. And Critty, thank you for uh, filling in for Sarah there admirably. We'll have you back as well. Thank you for having me. This was fun. One programming note, What Goes Up is taking next week off for spring break. We'll see you again on Friday, April 9th. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Critty is at at Critty Gupta News. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.